talk is um, right out of the newspapers. Uh, if you've been reading uh, about the work of the advisory group to the FDA, you know they've been discussing PrEP. And so Roy Gulick, who's the professor of medicine and head of infectious disease at Cornell, is going to talk about PrEP uh, for the prevention of HIV transmission. Roy? everybody. Um, I love coming to Chicago. I came yesterday. I got to run, on, run along the lake. It's really tremendous. As a New Yorker, I always tell my fellow New Yorkers, hey, Chicago is just like New York, except it's clean and the people are nice. <laughs> so let's talk about PrEP. Do you have a patient who's been on PrEP? Interesting, 14% of you already have a patient who's been on PrEP. That's interesting. Have you yourself prescribed PrEP? of you have already prescribed PrEP. So that would be, oh, we got a bell for that, okay. Uh, and that would have been off-label that you're prescribing. Okay, so why do we need new prevention strategies? And I think you know the answer to this. Every year in this country, about 50,000 people are newly infected with HIV. 50,000 Americans every year. If that's not stunning enough, then look at this line, which tracks it over the last 20 years. And the fact is it's horizontal. So nothing has changed in terms of the number of people getting infected every year. It's 50,000 a year for the last 20 years. So clearly, although treatment has improved tremendously, as we all know, prevention, unfortunately, is not working with the tools that we have, at least not working for everyone. So one of the new strategies is pre-exposure prophylaxis, or PrEP, which we would define as an HIV-uninfected person who's at risk takes antiretroviral drugs themselves. And the hypothesis here is that having ART in the bloodstream and the genital tract, HIV may be unable to establish infection. And so this would be another example of ART equaling treatment, equaling prevention. Well, when you think about the drugs we have today, there are 26 of them, and you might consider that we would use any or all or combinations of these to try to do just that, to try to prevent infection in an HIV-negative person. But of course, the drugs vary quite a bit, and when you begin to think of which drugs you use, we're talking about giving not for treatment but for prevention. You want drugs that are safe, efficacious, and well-tolerated. So the compounds that really have jumped to the front of the list are tenofovir, either by itself or combined with emtricitabine or FTC. And these were considered early on to be optimal PrEP candidates for just those reasons, potency, safety, 
tolerability and convenience with one pill once a day. So these are the ones that really jump to the front of the line in terms of testing for PrEP. What are the potential concerns? Well, we know these well. The first is that we use these drugs very commonly in people who are HIV infected. Do you really want to use the same drugs for prevention that you're using for treatment? So there's some debate about that. And the major concern is drug resistance. Will using these drugs for PrEP actually now begin to uh, start more drug resistance in the community? These drugs, of course, have toxicity. Tenofovir is uncommonly associated with renal toxicity, as you'll hear in the next talk, and bone toxicity as well. And then what's the cost of the agents? So Tenofovir FTC estimated about $16,000 a year. There are, are animal models where you can study PrEP, and again, tenofovir with or without FTC has been tested in animals. This is just one that was published just a couple of years ago from the CDC using an animal model for PrEP, and they looked at daily and intermittent PrEP regimens and used a shiv rectal challenge in these monkeys. And uh, what you can see here is that the untreated macaques all were infected within about 14 challenges. But the groups that got either tenofovir by itself, um, there's actually an FTC group by itself, either daily or intermittent, all had decreased rates of infection following challenge. So animal models supported the idea that we could study PrEP in humans. In fact, this launched a whole host of studies. And you can see that there were six major efficacy studies in 13 countries around the world, over 20,000 people were participating in PrEP studies. We have a lot of these results now available to us over the last couple of years. The first one to be published that really changed our thinking was the IPREX study. So this was a phase three study of PrEP with either tenofovir FTC combined or placebo. And the study population or HIV uninfected MSM or transgendered women. And this was an international study done in South America, South Africa, Thailand, and the US and enrolled about 2,500 uninfected men. They found out retrospectively that 10 were actually experiencing acute HIV at the time of enrollment. But what you see here is the percentage who seroconverted over the course of the study. And the numbers are 64 seroconversions in the placebo group, and this was a double-blind placebo-controlled trial, versus 36 in the group that received tenofovir FTC. So if you do the math there, that's a 45% reduction in the risk of HIV. That's good, and this was the data that was reviewed at the FDA meeting. It turns out if you actually looked for tenofovir levels measurable in the blood, in the subset of participants who had measurable tenofovir, there was a 92% reduction in risk. This underscores the point that simply having the bottle is not good enough. You actually have to take the drug for it to work. So adherence is extremely important in PrEP regimens. And this is from that IPREX study. They divided people into their self-reported adherence, either less than 50%, 50 to 90, or more than 90% adherent. And you can see that the efficacy rate 
really increases from 16 to 34 to 68 percent in the group that was the most adherent. That's 68 percent reduction in the risk of HIV transmission. We heard uh, also some follow-up data at this year's CROI in Seattle. They did a case control study where they looked at 48 cases of men who had been randomized to receive tenofovir FTC and seroconverted, and then matched each of them with three different controls, including one of the controls who reported unprotected receptive anal intercourse. And then they simply looked at was tenofovir detected. So you can see in the cases, these are the ones that seroconverted in the tenofovir FTC arm, only about 10% had tenofovir detected. And when you look at the controls, you can see about 50% had tenofovir detected. So once again, you have to take the stuff for it to work. They also did a modeling experiment using a separate pharmacokinetic study to try to look at intermittent use. Now, as uh, prescribed on this study, it was to be taken one pill once a day. But you can see when they looked at this separate PK study and estimated if you took fewer than once daily dosing, either two, four, or seven doses a week, you could see that that was correlated in this model with risk reduction. So a person needed to take four or more doses to have maximal protection uh, against HIV. While resistance is a concern that I've already raised with using drugs that we use for treatment for prevention. And I mentioned to you that there were 10 men who were enrolled in this study who retrospectively were found to be having acute HIV. That is, their antibody was negative. That's why they were enrolled in the study. But they had detectable HIV RNA that was determined retrospectively. That was not done prospectively in the study. So these 10 men received, some of them, tenofovir FTC, two-drug therapy. And as we know, that would lead to resistance. And in fact, they did see in two of the men resistance that had developed to uh, substitutions at 184 that correlate with FTC resistance. In the 100 men who uh, were uninfected um, but seroconverted during the study, as I mentioned, 83 and 48, you can see in the tenofovir group actually none of the 48 men who seroconverted had resistance to tenofovir. What about adverse events? Creatinine elevations were seen more commonly in the tenofovir FTC group. You can see about 2% versus 1% in the placebo group. It doesn't reach statistical significance with a P08. In terms of other side effects, the only ones that were seen more frequently with tenofovir FTC, nausea, again, a low rate of 2% versus less than 1% with placebo, and decreased weight, which might have been related to the nausea, at about the same frequency. Those are the only side effects that were more common in the tenofovir FTC group compared with the placebo group. Bone changes were also assessed in this study and did change. And what you see here, placebo's in red, and you see not much change, whether you look at spine or total hip. In the tenofovir group, there was a decrease that was seen uh, on the order of about 1%. And you can see that in spine, in hip, went down slightly and then went back up. So there are potentially bone changes that could occur, although these are very modest changes. So the CDC 
looked at this data, this was published in the New England Journal, and made recommendations for us, the community, as to what to do with PrEP for MSM. And these now are a bit dated. They came out January 27th of 2011, so they're over a year old. They are currently working on updated guidelines, which will be useful. But what they said was, if you are going to use PrEP in an HIV-negative gay man, you should document an HIV antibody negative status and also rule out acute infection with an HIV RNA test and an assessment of symptoms before you start. And that's, again, to avoid resistance. You should assess their creatinine clearance, and it should be over 60. That's because of tenofovir. Screen for sexually transmitted infections and screen for hepatitis B as well. You wouldn't probably want to, or you'd at least want to know if the person had hepatitis B infection before you come in with two active agents against hepatitis B. They say prescribe uh, tenofovir FTC, this, the combined co-formulated one pill once a day, and give a three-month prescription. Provide risk reduction, adherence, counseling, and condoms. And importantly, we should be doing all of these things in people that we offer PrEP. PrEP is not a substitute for good risk reduction, safe sex, and the use of condoms. And in fact, every study I'm going to tell you about today counseled the patients heavily on this risk reduction strategy. So PrEP is above and beyond what we're doing now. Um, on treatment, check the HIV antibody every two to three months. Check the BUN creatinine at three months and yearly. And again, continue to counsel, offer condoms, and assess for sexually transmitted infections. So those are the current CDC guidelines. And in fact, uh, this is from a gay paper in San Francisco. They started a demonstration project last fall um, offering PrEP to HIV uninfected men. And uh, a lot of the questions that came up with that original study is, well, what will it be like in a community setting? And so this is funded by the CDC to try to answer that question. Well, a big surprise followed the positive study in gay men and that was the announcement of a study looking at PrEP in women called the FEM-PREP study. This was a double-blind randomized study of the same PrEP regimen, Tenofovir FTC, but this time the target population were heterosexual African women. And you can see over 2,000 women entered and were randomized. And who were, were these women? Well, 59% were under the age of 25, so a very young group. 70% of them rep reported that they were at, quote, low or no risk for HIV, and just over half used condoms. The surprise was that this study was stopped early by the Independent Data Safety Monitoring Board in April of last year because they thought it was highly unlikely that any benefit would be demonstrated in this population. This was a huge surprise to the field and people didn't know why it happened. Why was this true? Why would it work in gay men and not work in heterosexual women? In fact, the women were being infected, and the DSMB um, said that about 5% of the women in each of the groups were seroconverting per year as the study went on. So why didn't it work? Well, we finally heard at the CROI meeting that it was very likely to be related to adherence. When the women were assessed by self-report, 95% said that they were taking their meds, and about 90% brought back pills, containers, that showed that they, at least that the, they weren't bringing back the pills. So by pill count, they were 90% adherent. Then when they looked at drug levels in the blood, 
only 26% had detectable tenofovir. So there's a real disconnect, as we know, between what patients will sometimes tell us or what they'll show us and what they're actually doing. So it's thought that FemPrep didn't work for women because they weren't taking the pills. And then if you go back and remember who these women were, young, not thinking that they were at risk for HIV, probably not an incredibly highly motivated group to take a pill once a day. Two big studies were reported initially at the uh, International AIDS meeting in Vienna last year, and these uh, I'll review for you. One was from the CDC called the Tenofovir 2 study. Same design, double-blind, placebo-controlled, this time done in adults uh, sexually active in Botswana, also young, between the ages of 18 and 39, and both men and women. A large study, over 1,200 people enrolled, about half were women. And here, is the, here are the overall results. In terms of tenofovir, FTC, and placebo, about 600. Good retention rates here, about 10% loss to follow up in each of the groups. And again, remember, it's double blind and placebo controlled. When you looked at new HIV infections, nine in the. Wow, I keep fading in and out, guys and 24 in the placebo group. So if you do the math, that's a protective efficacy now of 63% in this group. There were no safety differences reported between the two groups in this study, and they analyzed men versus women and found no differences by sex in terms of efficacy of this regimen. Right after this presentation at the Vienna meeting was the largest study yet done of PrEP, and this one is called the Partners PrEP Study, over 4,700 serodiscordant couples, so one HIV positive, one HIV negative, were studied in Kenya and Uganda. Of the HIV negative member of the, the couple, 38% were women, 62% men. Nearly all of them were married. This was a very adherent and, uh, group, 96% retention, so they only lost 4%, and they reported 97% adherence. And if you had to think who it might possibly be the most adherent group, it might be the HIV-negative member of a discordant couple. So here are the overall results. This was a three-arm study. They were randomized to tenofovir alone as PrEP, tenofovir FTC as PrEP, or the placebo group. And you can see about 1,500 patients in each group. In terms of HIV infections, 17 in the tenofovir group, 13 in the tenofovir FTC, and 52 in the placebo group. And again, doing the math, that's a protective efficacy of somewhere between 67 and 75 percent, highly statistically significant. They actually did look at tenofovir versus tenofovir FTC and could not detect a statistical difference between those two approaches, one versus two drugs. Again, they separated out after the FEMPREP study the results in women and men, and you can see that the numbers are very similar. So tenofovir FTC worked in discordant couples regardless of whether the uninfected member was a man or a woman. Again, at the CROI meeting, we heard some up-to-date pharmacokinetic data. Looking at this study, the Partners Prep, they too did a case cohort study similar to the one I showed you with the IPREX study. The cases were 29 people who were randomized to PrEP 
and seroconverted, and then they used a random cohort of the remaining patients who did not seroconvert. And again, they simply looked at, could you detect tenofovir? So in the cases, you can see only about 30% had detectable tenofovir, and in the controls, 80% had detectable tenofovir. Once again, you have to take the drug for it to work. When tenofovir was detected in that population, PrEP was actually associated with nearly a 90% uh, risk reduction in terms of HIV seroconversion. They did notice that adherence patterns were different, and this was kind of interesting. Um, In the control group, 20% of them had never had detectable tenofovir. 10% had low levels. Occasionally, 70% had adequate levels over time. So it looked like this was a highly adherent group that really did take the pills a majority of the time. There are two more ongoing PrEP studies to know about. So one is the first one done in injection drug users. This is being conducted in Bangkok using tenofovir alone. It's a big study, over 2,400, and they anticipate that we will see these results later this year. So that one's still in progress. And then there's a large study in the microbicide trials network, the MTN. It's called VOICE. They enrolled over 5,000 women in Africa in this study, and they were randomized to one of five arms, so quite complicated. One group got tenofovir for PrEP, one tenofovir FTC for PrEP. There's a matching placebo group. One group got the uh, tenofovir vaginal gel to self-administer as a microbicide, and a fifth group got a placebo gel. And unlike the Caprice study, where the gel was uh, recommended to be administered according to sex, before and after sex, this was actually a daily gel on the study. So voice was in progress, and then, boom, another DSMB recommendation. In fact, two of them at the end of 2011, both surprising. So one came out in September. The DSMB recommends stopping the tenofovir-only arm. So the oral prep tenofovir single-agent arm stopped because of futility. That is, it would not show efficacy. Again, that's in contrast to the study I just showed you where the single drug was efficacious in discordant couples. And then just two months later, the DSMB met again and concluded that the tenofovir gel was not effective and recommended stopping that arm as well. So two of the arms of voice were removed. The matching placebo gel removed. The remaining comparison in the voice study is tenofovir FTC versus placebo. Why didn't these two strategies work? We really don't know, and so we expect to hear about that at coming meetings. So what's the status of tenofovir FTC for PrEP? Well, the data are all under review at the FDA, and it's the data I just reviewed with you. So it's the IPREX study, it's the TDF2 study from the CDC, and it's the Partners PrEP study. All of that is at the FDA. They granted priority review because this is uh, an unmet need according to the FDA definitions. And as uh, John introduced me with, this is very timely because the meeting, the advisory committee meeting, just happened last week. So what did they decide? Well, they voted to approve tenofovir FTC. So this would be the first drug approved for prevention of HIV. And uh, it's interesting to see the votes. They were asked to consider three different populations. So one was MSM. That's based on the IPREX study that I just showed you. And 19 voted for, three against. 
for approval of tenofovir FTC for PrEP. Then they considered discordant couples and had a very similar outcome. Nineteen of the committee members voted for, two against, and one abstention. Lastly, they considered just a sexually active adult who was at risk for HIV infection. And there you saw some more disagreement, but it passed 12 for and eight against. So that the committee as a whole recommended that TDF-FTC be approved for PrEP. And a formal decision by the FDA, they often take the advice of their committees, but is expected by next month. So if you go on the CDC guidelines, remember all the data I've shown you so far for PrEP is with tenofovir, with or without FTC. But if you go on the website of the CDC, they have some recommendations for drugs for prophylaxis. Use the most effective drugs. No drug is 100% protective. You must combine it with personal protective measures. Choose well-tolerated drugs. Minimize side effects. Consider concomitant conditions like pregnancy or renal disease. Consider drug-drug interactions. Daily medicine is often preferred. And try to pick the least expensive medication. These are the recommendations for malaria prophylaxis. But it works for HIV as well. And so the point here is we have a PrEP agent that's coming soon, but it would be nice to have some alternative agents as well. So as you know, for malaria prophylaxis, we have a choice among a bunch of agents, and we really have to individualize the choice to the person based on their characteristics, where they're going in the world, what other meds they're taking. And uh, we go through the side effects, walk through people, in terms of what they might expect. And that helps us decide on which of the agents would be the most successful in preventing malaria. I would propose to you we should do the same thing with PrEP agents. So the uh, Division of AIDS at the NIH actually had a working group and reiterated what the most important qualities of an antiretroviral drug that we use per, for prevention would be. Safe, penetrating target tissues, protects against HIV in the tissues, long-lasting, convenient dosing, unique resistance profile, or a high barrier to resistance, minimize drug interactions. Here's an interesting one. Possibly not a part of current treatment regimens and affordable, easy to use, and implement. Of these, they, they thought that the top four were the most important, and of these, number one on the list was safety. We need to pick drugs for prevention that are safe to use in uninfected people. So if you look at our list of 26 again and you apply all of these characteristics, you knock out many drugs on this list. In fact, you're left with a very short list. So I took out most of the nukes because of toxicity, most of the non-nukes because of the low barrier to resistance, most of the protease inhibitors because of inconvenient dosing and side effects. Um, T20 came off the list, big surprise. <laughs> And what were we left with? Well, we're left with the drugs we've been talking about. Tenofovir FTC, 3TC, interestingly, is on the list. It's now generic. It's never been used in a PrEP study, so that's a possible drug. And then Maraviroc and Raltegravir kind of rise to the top in terms of fulfilling all of the requirements for PrEP. And if we begin to try to avoid our preferred drugs, that helps us as well. So as you know, when you look at the USDHHS guidelines for treatment, tenofovir FTC is part of every regimen. It's the preferred drug. So could we avoid the drugs that we use commonly for treatment? 
And uh, some people think about life cycle, so it might be attractive to think about an entry inhibitor for PrEP. That is something that would be active against the virus before it actually gains entry inside the cell. But uh, different classes could lend themselves as well. So we have opted to think about Maraviroc for PrEP. Why? It's an entry inhibitor. Again, that's mechanistically interesting. Has a safety profile now for five years and is safe. Achieves high tissue levels. Interestingly, it's concentrated in vaginal secretions threefold higher than in blood. And it's also concentrated in rectal tissue eight to 26 times higher than blood. So it's actually reaching target tissues at high levels. It prevented HIV infections in an animal model, and I should say they also studied raltegravir in this model, and that too prevented animals from getting infected. Drug resistance is uncommon. Once daily dosing is possible, and the fact is we simply don't use a lot of Maraviroc right now, so it would be available for prevention. There's some potential disadvantages for Maraviroc. It has limited safety data in HIV uninfected individuals, in fact, the longest an uninfected individual has taken Maraviroc is three months. And that was on a study for rheumatoid arthritis because of anti-inflammatory properties, and it didn't work. There's increased pathogenicity of some viral infections. West Nile virus in people with the Delta 32 deletion is more pathogenic. Other theoretical safety risks, although they haven't been recorded in the last five years, it's not labeled for once daily dosing, although the PK supports it, and there is some potential for drug-drug interactions. And importantly, it's not active against X4 virus, although that's an uncommon virus for people to be infected with. So we are starting a study that's coming soon, um, and this is from the HPTN, the Prevention Trials Network, and the ACTG. It's aimed at gay men, 400. I'll, I'll tell you that we are adding a cohort of women uh, that will come later as well. And it's a forearm study, Maraviroc by itself, Maraviroc with FTC, Maraviroc with tenofovir, or the control arm tenofovir FTC. So again, this is simply to define additional agents that might work for PrEP. There's some interest in the scientific community right now at looking at long-acting preparations. So you may know real piverine. There's an injectable form of it that lasts for 30 days. There's also an investigational integrase inhibitor that has the same property. So might those be good uses for PrEP? That's where uh, the field is going next. Okay, last question. Now, how likely are you to prescribe PrEP compared with when I asked you before? More, the same, less likely, or not applicable? is, okay, 45% said more likely, 34% said the same, 3% uh, of you just don't want to hear it. And uh, I'll thank you for your attention. Thanks. Thank you. <laughs> well done. Um, so fill out the question cards. Um, bring them up. There's one here. In, 
In discordant couples, does tenofovir in the partner, uh, in the positive partner, have impact upon protection? Has this been looked at? Great. That's a great question. We actually talked about that last night. If you have a discordant couple, there are two strategies for prevention that you can employ. One would be to treat the positive partner, and we know that if you treat not, of course, with just one drug, but with three drugs, you can reduce the risk of transmission to the negative member of the couple 96%, or probably close to 100%. And we know that from a big randomized study called HBTN052 that was published um, last summer, and the results really released around the world. So that is a highly effective strategy for preventing transmission between discordant couples. Treating the negative partner also is likely to be a benefit. If you need to do both, we simply don't know the answer to that. In the discordant couple study that I um, shared with you about PrEP, a positive partner was not being treated at the time. You mentioned in your talk that uh, 3TC had not been used, and why? Is there a reason for that? That's a great question. I've been trying to find out the answer. We were interested in our study of combining Aramorac with 3TC, but we actually got pushback on it because it had never been studied, either in an animal model or in people, in terms of prep. There's no reason that it shouldn't work, but there simply wasn't data to support it. I, I think, probably going forward, um, the CDC guys are now testing 3TC as a prep agent. And it makes sense since it's going generic. It'd be nicer because it's cheaper. If the FDA approves, will insur the insurance companies pay for it? Yeah, actually some insurance companies right now are paying for prep. Um, and they're doing that simply on the basis of the science that I shared with you. But in general, when FDA approves a drug here in the U.S., the, both the federal insurance and private insurance usually follow suit and will support it. Big question, of course, is who are you going to use it? And uh, I suspect that guidelines panels will, will address that. And probably what we should do is target the highest risk population. Do you know whether the Ryan White clinics will be able to provide this? It's a great question. Um, or more generally, who is going to be prescribing the prep? It's probably not going to be HIV docs don't see negative patients. But let me ask you, let's do it the old-fashioned way. How many of you right now see HIV-negative patients? Raise your hand. Okay, so 42%. So a lot of them. <laughs> <laughs> the question is, will internal medicine doctors be comfortable prescribing this as part of general medical care? They just don't know these drugs like we do, so there might be some apprehension. What if the discord, the, the negative partner is pregnant? Good question. Uh, Tenofovir has an increasing record in terms of safety in pregnancy, um, and uh, FTC also thought to be relatively safe in pregnancy. So that's a complicated situation. Um, given the need for good adherence. Um, is is there any use of PrEP related to sexual activity? Great question. So all the studies that I shared with you today were all take one pill once a day. 
And one of the next movements in the field is really to see would intermittent or episodic dosing work for PrEP. That one model I showed you seemed to suggest that if you took fewer than four doses a week, you began to see efficacy in terms of avoiding HIV infection go down the lines. So it's probably not going to work as a morning before or after, before or after pill. Um, people probably will need to take it for uh, periods of time just to have the drug on board in both the blood and the general trials. But there are studies right now looking at these kind of strategies. Do you know how the efficacy or the, excuse me, the adherence to using condoms played out in these studies that you... That's a good question, too. They, actually, every one of the studies that I reviewed with you assessed behaviors as the study was going on, and all of them showed that people tended to practice safe sex more than they did before they entered the study. So condom use went up and unsafe sex went down in all of these studies over time. The question, and you might say, why is that? Um, but probably it was because, again, they were counseled that you could use even a placebo. And the fact that they returned for visits meant that they got ongoing counseling throughout the study about safe sex and condom use. How will this play out in the community? Could be very different. I know a lot of people are concerned that people will see PrEP as a substitute for safe sex or a substitute for condoms. Again, I think we need to reinforce with our patients that you shouldn't do that. It's above what you're doing now, not instead of what you're doing. In a discordant couple situation, would you do the trophile test for the infected individual? If you're using Mirabarab. If you want to use Mirabarab. In other words, do you need to know what the status of the infected, the infected virus is? Do you have any data about cost effectiveness? Or is that going to be come up in one of the later talks? Yeah, so there was a recent study in the annals which looked at the cost effectiveness of PrEP, and it really wasn't cost effective unless you focused on the most risky group. And Mike Sag is going to show you the data in a presentation later on today. I think it reinforces that probably PrEP is not for everybody. In fact, it's not for most people. It should probably be for those people who are identifying themselves at risk and need an additional strategy to use. Any questions at the microphone? Anybody? No, I'll go back. Just shout it out, Joe. I have two questions, actually. One. Your opening slide, I think, is very dramatic. The, the fact that we're not making any difference in terms of prevention. And there was a recent study that I'm sure you know about in, uh, that showed actually in young gay black men the, the incidence is actually increasing. And I wonder if you or anybody has any information as to whether 
that's a group that's likely to accept PrEP, that would be interested in PrEP, and, and, and how, how do we figure that out? Because it certainly wasn't a group that was studied in, in IPREX. Yeah, that's a great question. So Joe's right, the 50,000 cases a year for the last 20 years, the number is the same, but the populations affected are changing. And as you know, African-Americans and Latinos are being increasingly part of the pool of newly infected people. If you separate it out, as Joe suggests, the one group in this country where infections are going up as opposed to going down is gay men under the age of 30. So they're actually going down in gay men over the age of 30. And then if you study that group, it's young gay men of color, African-American and Latino gay men under the age of 30. So this is the group most at risk. And as Joe points out, on the high-prep study, it, it really didn't have overrepresentation of that particular group. Now, young men of color who are gay are not traditionally engaged in healthcare. And so this is going to be a really tough group to reach. Um, I don't have any answers for how to reach that group. There have been a couple of studies just to see if gay men are aware of PrEP. And these are a little dated given the amount of press coverage in the last couple of months. But many gay men just have never heard of PrEP, didn't know about PrEP. Um, so I guess it would be up to us, the medical community, to really communicate this. This recent meeting last week got a flurry of press coverage, so at least the community will be more aware of what that is and, and that it's likely to be approved. But yeah, I think it's a tough group to reach. Short question, Joe. Yeah, well, the other thing we talked about last night was the issue of the people that do the studies like to show if you take the medicine, it's more effective. But then when they show the toxicity, they show it uh, for everybody. And I think it'd be really important to um, examine the toxicity of tenofovir in actually the adherent patients. Because you point out that effect on bone was quite small, but that was in, uh, across a relatively large population. Yeah, but it seems to me the follow-up on, on toxicity is very short. We don't know what 20 years of Truvada is going to cause. And, uh, yeah, that's all true. Yeah. So not only do you need to take the pills for them to work, you don't get toxicity if you don't take the pills either. So that doesn't need to be. Short question, Susan? Yeah. Um, I was very um, happy to see that women, uh, heterosexual women, were approved um, for use of PrEP. I've been thinking about preception, using PrEP before getting pregnant, and some women don't have uh, opportunities to have control over their partners, whether they're using condoms or, or heart, whatever. Um, and I was just curious to thoughts as to whether it should be directed sort of sex or uh, once a day pill or how, how you think of that so unique population. Yeah, again, I think PrEP has to initially be studied as once a day just to make sure it's on board. And then if it works, then I think intermittent use or episodic use could be better. Moranorex is interesting, of course, because it's not acting as the virus that's binding to this to the uh, CCR5 receptor, the host cell receptor, and it hangs on there for a while, so it may be more tolerant of intermittent use, but we don't know that Okay. Thank you very much. Thanks. Our next speaker is Christine Weil.